Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back. Hello. How have you all been? Hope you've all been well. Hannah, how have you been? I've been all right. It's been a long time since we recorded our last episode. Yes. What are we talking about today? Uh, oh, today we're talking... It's a bit esoteric, actually. We're, it is. But it, it was inspired by very real events that are currently in the news. Yeah, it's... I don't... I, I came up with this idea, and I'm still not quite sure this is going to work as an episode, but, but we'll see. Um, as we record this, uh, and I'm sure this will still be in the news when you listen to it, um, the news coming out of the United States is about the allegedly CIA employee who uh, has just uh, leaked whistle blue. Is that the word? Has whistle blown. Has, in, has blown whistle the blown. Whistle. Has blown the whistle. Um, about a now famous, now infamous phone call between Trump and the president of Ukraine in which Trump asks him to open an investigation into Joe Biden and his son about corruption. And given what the White House has admitted to, it seems clear that they've broken the law again. Uh, but we don't know if that, that will be proven through uh, impeachment proceedings or not yet. Um, so I was listening to this coverage uh, of, on various different platforms and various different sources. In particular, I was listening to the podcast version of the Rachel Maddow show, uh, which is something I listen to on a fairly regular basis. And Rachel Maddow mentioned the fact that there has been an audiobook version, uh, a recording with an with an audiobook actor, as it were, um, of the letter that the whistleblower sent to the chairman of two relevant Congress committees. Uh, it's a nine-page letter, I think, in the recording version. is just around half an hour. And it is a reading of the letter. There is no context. There is no um, interpretation. It's the text of the letter read out in its entirety. Uh this has been uploaded. It was recorded by Penguin Random House. It has been now uploaded to SoundCloud, where we exist as well. Uh, and as of recording, it has had 220,000-something listens. And it made me wonder why. What exactly is, is happening? It also reminded me, uh, some of our listeners might remember, in 2016 there was a fringe show in Edinburgh called Iraq Out and Loud, which involved the reading of the Chilcot Report Inquiry, a Chil Chilcot Inquiry Report, which we've spoken about on, on this podcast before, uh, the 2.9 million words, I think, um, which was read over two weeks by uh, a number of comedians and, you know, quote-unquote ordinary people. Um in the month of August, and when when Edinburgh has has its Fringe Festival, um, and it also reminded you of another production, I think. Yes. Yeah, so, um, I read a short piece in the New Yorker a couple of months ago. I think it was published uh, in July about a staged. It was a staged reading of 
the Mueller report. So it was actually condensed by a playwright, Robert Schenken, and performed a bit more, not just read, but performed by quite well-known Hollywood actors. And it was underwritten by three members of the Disney family, three kind of nieces and nephews of Walt Disney. And it was produced in New York. And there were, it was obviously press were invited, obviously, because the New Yorker did a piece about it. And um, uh, Kevin Klein was in it. Kevin Klein is uh, Mueller himself. Um, and there's a number of other kind of very well-known famous people who participated. And it, it, at first glance, there is a sort of similarity here to turning dull legal political texts that are of supreme contemporary importance and relevance into media for mass consumption. Yeah, and I guess that is, on the face of it, that is the justification for it, right? The, yeah. the idea is that by changing the format, we reach a wider audience, perhaps. Yeah. So uh, if anyone, we'll put the link in the in the description, anyone who wants to go to the SoundCloud page of the reading of the whistleblower complaint will see that it is it has elicited a number of different comments to the effect of get the vote out in 2020 spread the word impeach trump let's let's show everyone quite how awful he is you know he's a criminal he should be impeached all of those things in other words it is certainly being recognized by some people at least, that there is a definite material polit political consequence to the act of reading the, the complaint. In other words, there might be people who wouldn't have read it, but might be able to listen to it. Uh, and there, there might be people who maybe uh, haven't yet been convinced by... Trump's actions as in the White House, who might be convinced by this. Um, I'm not sure I agree with either of those points of view, but but they clearly exist. You know that that is one reason why Rachel Maddow mentioned it in on her program. She has put it in in what she calls the Maddow blog, the blog accompanying her program. Uh, so there is a general recognition, I think, that allowing the text of the com of the complaint to exist in multiple different forms will attract multiple different audiences. You mentioned the Mueller Report. The Mueller Report has been released in its own audiobook version by Simon & Schuster, uh, though, though it has, along with the actual report, it also has accompanying material, contextualizing, introducing, uh, giving timelines and things like that. But again, it has, it clearly has the aim, at least, of educating, informing, perhaps persuading uh, an audience, if nothing else, that it is important, right? That the Mueller report is important, that the whistleblower is important, and that these, as you said, quite dense, quite difficult, quite, in some senses, perhaps boring texts are key to the way in which our democracy functions and for our democracy to function in the way it was intended. All of us, or as many of us as possible, should be consuming these texts yeah and that they should exist in the public domain yeah and that that 
we should have a, a kind of shared knowledge that they do exist in the public domain and that that information does not belong to our elected officials or elite bureaucrats who produce them, but that this information belongs to us. It's sort of a WikiLeaks sensibility that democracy needs democracy needs as much information in the public domain as possible, which is, of course, not necessarily always what democracy says about itself. No, um, though, of course, I'm not sure to what extent taking a text that is written and turning it into a, a, a piece of audio that can be listened to puts it any more in the public domain than it had already been. Yeah, that you could just click on a link on mm. a website. On a website. I mean, there, there is a an, an ability, disabilities access issue here, which is important, and, and that has to be borne in mind. But other than that, I'm not sure a 30-minute recording of something will reach a hugely significant number of people who wouldn't have read a nine-page document yeah the Mueller report uh the Mueller report drama is i mean it could be argued right to play devil's advocate that the Mueller report drama is different because the Mueller report is information that has been collected over a number of years it was a sort of forensic investigation that was done and the report itself is much longer um and more convoluted and requires a bit more background knowledge. So there could be an argument about a more explicit translation of the Mueller report into a play. That comes with its own tradition, right? There's a tradition yeah. of verbatim theater, which which the Mueller report production is part of. Yep. Um, and because it's a stage production, because it's... It has, you know, as you as you said, big name actors, big name productions. It carries its own set of meanings, as it were, as as quote unquote established theater. Yeah. Um, I don't think, generally speaking, audiobook actors enjoy the same kind of profile as a Kevin Klein, you know, as a as a as an established stage actor or screen actor. Uh, so I don't know if anyone would be attracted to this audio version of the whistleblower complaint based on who's doing the reading. Because they didn't get a celebrity to do it. They didn't get a celebrity to do it. They, they've got an established audiobook actor to do it. Yeah. But I don't think she's a celebrity in the way that an Annette Benning or a Kevin Klein might attract people by virtue of who they are. Of course, there is a a sense in which Penguin Random House might be that celebrity name you know you mentioned disney so uh the the disney name in 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 terms of the the source of funding that 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 made this play possible so there are there are lots of celebrity label sources that might attract people rachel maddow herself being a being a, a, a key example of this someone who is um a political figure in her own right I, I don't think she would mind being described as a political figure uh, in her own right. People listen to her show uh, for, among other things, news and views from a particular political perspective. And if you go and look at the comments on the SoundCloud page, a lot of the comments are, thank you, Rachel, for pointing us in this direction. But And this isn't something I say often, but I wonder if there is a kind of preaching to the converted here. 
In other words, I don't know the extent to which the people who are saying thank you, Rachel, for pointing us in this direction, let's share this and get the vote out in 2020, what proportion of them actually thought differently before they heard this recording. Do you see what I mean? Yes. So we've established that we don't think that this is about changing hearts and minds. And if it is not about changing hearts and minds, then what is it about? Why bother? And I think this is particularly uh, important to question when it comes to the Chilcot reading. Um, to give you a description of the form it took, there is a Guardian article which we will link to uh, in the description. Uh, it took place in a shed. Uh, in it was there were the schedule was put together in groups of six. Uh, so one person reading for 15 minutes, another person taking over, another person taking over, and then once the six had done, the six would be replaced with, with another six. There was a live feed, but there was no audience. Um, it was, as I said, this sort of white shed, a clock on the wall, and people sitting reading bits of the text. Um, and these people were sort of famous people, Comedians, Edinburgh has a few comedians in, in August. Um, and they they put together a video featuring some of the comedians, Arthur Smith, Nish Kumar, Mark Thomas, Shapika Sandhi, who uh, participated in this and spoke about why they participated in it. Uh, and a lot of the rhetoric was about democracy. Uh, Nish Kumar described it as a political act without a political allegiance, which seemed to me a really fascinating uh, uh, way to put it. It wasn't, certainly by the going by the video, it didn't seem as if the people who took part in it had great faith in what it would do to change hearts and minds, to use your, your phrase. Uh, Mark Thomas finishes the video saying that the only justice he expects when it comes to Blair will be on Blair's tombstone. Uh, but they all clearly felt it, it worth doing. And I guess this is the sort of central theoretical question I want us to think about today, which is, does something happen to a bit of text when it is read out loud whether there is an audience or not, whether anyone listens or not, whether it changes anyone's views or not, does something different happen to the language when it is spoken as opposed to when it has been printed or written down? And if so, what? I think the fact that these types of performances happen and continue to happen and the fact that we find them interesting means that something does happen. I wonder if it has less to do with something happening to the language, the transformation of the language, and more that the the reading, the act of reading and listening transforms the individual who's participating in the act. Yeah, so I guess... I mean, one of the, I've been trying to think about what theory, if there is any theory, that helps us understand this. And one bit of theory that I immediately thought of is 
performativity in the form that the theorist J.L. Austin uses in in his essay, Performative Utterances, where he talks about if I say something, I'm doing something as well. And it's Austin uses the phrase speech act, so it's clear that Faustin language is performative when it is spoken as opposed to when it is written. And I think you are right that any change is happening on the level of the individual, but is that change happening that is happening to the individual happening because they are performing language as opposed to writing it down or reading it quietly? Yes. Yes. Um, as you were speaking, we also have um, Bakhtin, who teaches us about uh, essentially like dialogue language as existing between um, two people. Um, and there's quite a bit of perf- performance embedded in what Bakhtin talks about, although performativity isn't really his thing. Um, but there is something about about speaking and spoken language that is that is powerful in its own way. So the power that is ascribed to spoken language is different from written texts, which is different from if you're thinking about like Derrida, for example, the whole world is a text to be read. Um, and in some ways, kind of spoken language and differentiating between spoken language and written language is a response to that kind of postmodern impulse to flatten everything in terms of text and then and then dig so far into it that you destroy it, um, which is a fascinating project, one we've talked about before. Um, so yes, I think so. I think it's also difficult for us to talk about it because we are so text-based in so much of our learning and our training that that some, one of the things we're responding to when we talk about this topic is something that is is almost pre-language f- for us. And so we're having difficulty putting words to it because the words we're using aren't the words that are used to perform the pieces that we're talking about and therefore we can't fully grasp the words that we're talking about yeah i mean i guess both the example of austin and Bakhtin that you used imply a performance that is social Mm -hmm. and because it is social it is also relational Mm -hmm. now that relation might be performer audience or it might be conversation but it it involves someone speaking and someone listening Mm -hmm. and then the listener might speak as well so it might be a conversation but it involves it involves a speaker and a listener but is that speaker and listener and the relationship between the two different from just the speaker or just the listener yes because yeah so if you consume the audiobook your relationship to the speaker is less important. Your relationship to the spoken words is what we're talking about. And if you're the speaker and you don't have an audience and you don't see your audience, your relationship to the words that you're speaking is the primary relationship. So, I mean, you could talk about in terms of a consumption, kind of Marxist reading, a consumption of the material as product, but we're not interested in that here. Um, Partly because a lot of this is 
there's a sort of active understanding on the part of the participants that it's not so easy to connect the activity to labor for money um, or to labor for livelihood. There's something else going on. Um, And it, it reminds me of the anthropologist Victor Turner who in the 1970s, um, along with Sophie Turner, wrote about um, this concept of performance and performativity in terms of ritual and practice. And ritual specifically as because anthropologists are often very concerned with the relationship between culture and identity um, that is distinctive from, obviously, it, interwoven with and entangled with the power of the state and the power of institutions and economic practice, but that culture is distinctive and culture has its own internal workings and that those internal workings are tied up with individual identity that is distinctive from and worthy of study outside of an economic explanation of for an identity or a political social explanation for an identity. So, um, for them, performance and performativity are about an individual's identity construction, and the act of performance transforms the individual from one thing to another, and that it is that transformative process that is cultural practice. And it doesn't fit neatly all the time with political practice. So th- they're always at play and kind of intention. But I think it speaks to some of the the tensions that the comedians themselves highlight, which is this isn't doing anything in terms of changing attitudes or changing minds or having any sort of um, kind of legal or political justice. We aren't achieving those goals, but they're also not able to articulate what the what their goals actually are. And so I, th- I think that that means they're a little bit more existential. Yeah, there's a there's a kind of sort of self-deprecating note in the video, sort of like, you know, this this seems like a strange thing to do, but it seems important, and we don't quite know why it is important. And one of the, one of the arguments that are being used, and I think this argument has been used in the Muller Report production as well, which is that these documents are at once supremely important and mostly unread. Right, no, no, or very few people are going to go through the 2.9 million or whatever words the Chilcot report was. People will consume bits of it, and will consume bits of it often based on someone else's selection and not knowing why that someone else has selected. Except, of course, that falls down as well because no one person is reading this or even consuming this whole thing in the production either. Um, you know, as we we said, five, six people are doing it in turns, each person reading for 15 minutes or whatever. So it's it's a, almost as if the the fact that the production exists in the form that it does, in the form that it did, highlights the the fact that the report as a whole can't be consumed that and and highlights the democratic deficit that exists in part because the report cannot be consumed, that no one is, or very few people are willing or able to wade through the documents and read it. 
and you are doing that paradoxically by reading it out loud in other words the 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 language itself may or may not be con- converted or transformed but they're given a different type of meaning right a meaning that doesn't rest so much on whether or not the chilcot report found blair guilty whether or not it it found the war to be illegal but it's it's changing those words into something else it's it's it it brings to those words a different meaning yes but what is the meaning well it's i mean while you were describing the ritualism in performance using turner what i was thinking was chants at political demonstrations you know what do we want peace when do we want it now uh don't attack iraq you know there were so many of uh, various descriptions and i'm not sure that chants are there to transform people's opinion right i don't i don't know of anyone who thought they supported the war heard a political chant and now don't but they still have meaning they have a they have a role to play in in our political system and i wonder if the reading of the report has a similar role to play even though it is not about changing people's minds yeah well it's like the it the words the words the chants the readings are a key component of the ritual the ritual can't take place without the ritualized reading of the words and so it's it is the ritualizing that is the meaning does it become something like forgive me father for i've sinned or you know our father in heaven like you know the the words yeah. acquire a certain kind of religiosity perhaps yeah and the practice of of saying them is a is a practice yeah and it's a it's a ritual that inscribes upon the individual saying them a certain meaning or significance um a, a sort of kind of spiritual self but in a secular sense in in this case so if that is true and i think i agree with you i guess the point then is is that the ritualistic transformative element that language then possesses is that limited to reading it or is it also come from listening to it so if we go back to the audiobook version of course only one person is reading you know thousands upon thousands might be listening can that ritual then extend to listening to it as well yes of course so if you think about um especially in christian traditions um but also in many other religious traditions the leader of a service speaks the service um so in certain tradition like in in the catholic tradition certain uh scriptures are read across the the course of the year and it's cyclical um it's there are kind of similar practices in the jewish tradition so when i'm thinking of a bar mitzvah uh when you are bar mitzvahed um and in some places when you're bat mitzvahed if you're a, a young woman um you read the scriptures that that accompany the time at which you're being bar mitzvah that come in the the calendar year. So it's kind of luck of the draw what you read and the conferring upon you of a new identity, manhood, adulthood, womanhood comes partly via the act of you reading the scriptures that tap into the 
the tradition of which you are a part. And if you are listening, you are also witnessing that transformation and it requires it requires a, a witness in some way to to watch the transformation. But if you're receiving a service or if you are um, receiving a mantra, you go to, you know, you go to an ashram and you pay a bunch of money if you're white and you receive a mantra or whatever. Listening, the act of listening to the service, the act of listening to the scripture, the act of listening to um, the, the penance that you're given that you need to then go and do, that all inscribes and then reinscribes that identity upon you again. Um, evangelical churches have taken this to a really new and fascinating place where you have a very performative role. Um, if you know, pastors are extremely emotive, um, and you have kind of practices like speaking in tongues that appear in some of these churches and the listening is in and of itself very important but it's different from the the speaking they're two different types of acts and so there's of course a power relationship you know between the the leader of the congregation but also a lot of these churches have have personal witness testimony in a lot of cases and they often also ask children to minister and so there's a there is also a um a breaking down of that power relationship and the listening is its own ritualized practice but the the words have to be spoken they're different from reading scripture yourself yeah i was thinking um we'll there's a new yorker article about the muller report performance which we'll share uh, and the New York article describes the Muller Report as the Latin Bible that exists and is important for the faithful, but not necessarily because people read it. Uh, there are certainly Muslim communities around the world where people have memorized certainly lots and lots of bits of the Quran, uh, if not the whole Quran, but they don't know Arabic. So it's not about necessarily understanding the the message, but it's about the sound of God's voice, mm-hmm. uh, which is why reading it in translation, even if you understand the message, might be an important thing to do in and of itself, but it's not the same as being able to recite it in Arabic or being able to recite it in Latin. In that sense, if the point of these you know, massive dry inaccessible publications is in part that they are not going to be read is the performance of it and i'm thinking specifically about the performance of the chilcot report is the perf- the performance of it and the importance of that performance lie equally in the fact that it wasn't listened to you know neither of us were there neither of us heard it uh you can access bits of it on on various videos you know on guardian and al jazeera and various news channels it it became a bit of a story but we certainly haven't listened to all of it i don't know if anyone has listened to all of it but we haven't listened to substantial bits of it but is it important for us as well whether or not we listen to it for you and me no the fact that it happened 
is also significant. And I think that is part of it. The fact that it happened and that the people who who did read it, who did speak the words, all remember having done it and were were, you know, themselves before they did it. And then another kind of aspect of their identity was constructed after having done it. That process has happened whether or not you and I heard it. And in But it fact, hasn't happened for us. No, it hasn't happened for yes. us. It hasn't. And actually there's part of the fact that we weren't there and that we didn't do it. Yeah. That means that we don't get to share yeah. in that shared experience. And we do feel it. And I think part of our interest in this mm. is is that feeling of exclusion that comes from not having had the experience, not being um transformed in the way that those people were which intentionally or not is is the opposite of democratizing isn't it <laughs> isn't it i mean the 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 argument that on the on the face of it the argument that was made for certainly for the the uh whistleblower complaint and for the chilcot report is that accessing these texts in as many different formats as possible is important for democracy you know that that these texts say something about the political system in which we live and which we participate in and where we have certain rights and responsibilities to keep ourselves informed and you know it should af- affect our political views and who we vote for and all of those things the idea being that knowing what is in the chilcot report knowing what is in the muller report is part of our duty as citizens but from what you just said the ritual importance of it can only happen to those select few who were there but it's the same with um right so in a, in to go back to the the catholic church analogy you have different there are different um different categories and types of people that make up the body of the church. So you have the people who sacrifice themselves and live as monks. You have the people who sacrifice themselves and live as priests. Um, The people who translate the materials, the people who, and then, you know, you've got nuns who sacrifice themselves in terms of, you know, experiencing mystical experiences and all sorts of things. And then you have lay people. And then you have the kind of wealthy feudal lords that fund the whole situation and each each category or kind of subject within the the kind of church framework is still brought in to the system somehow so you and I are still included in the sense that we we weren't there we weren't part of that that it's like concentric circles except except of course the narrative of democracy is that it is hierarchical and the catholic church isn't democratic is it though is the narrative of democracy that it isn't hierarchical because if you think about the way our democratic republics are structured the idea is that we have elected officials that do the thinking for us we have public intellectuals that do other types of thinking for us we have um wealthy people that do the funding for us so that we we actually have a division of labor and the idea of the certainly the republic in the united states is that not all of us are equally informed about stuff that's the whole elected official and point. that's the argument against referenda for example you know that that we elected you to decide 
Yeah, so that everyone has a different role to play. And original democracy was on such a small scale that when you have, you know, really, you know, a small number of people who know each other through others, you know, the network is small enough that everyone kind of knows each other. You can replicate this kind of kind of spiritual experience, this sort of ritualized experience or practice in a, you know, a, a public square or in a public space, a government building. But we don't live in democracies that are small and homogenous. We don't live in Greek city-states. And the the way that democracy got transformed in the kind of 17th century, 18th century came about because we had these kind of larger territorial tracts that weren't so easily incorporated into a kind of pure democratic system. So following that then, is is the the ritual importance of the reading that we are talking about is that importance the same whether the reading is done in front of five people in a shed in edinburgh in august or whether it is done in the on the grassy bit outside of parliament house in an open space do you see what i mean like is is yeah. the yeah i think because yeah. because at a certain point only a only a finite number of people will be able to engage with the experience in the moment that it happens and if you're thinking about scale and if you're interested in questions of scale like most geographers are scale becomes really relevant here because the scale at which the experience happens is democratic so you think about it in terms of this the scale at which the experience is constructed and the reading is constructed and the ritual is performed and within that that scale the boundaries of that scale it is democratic it's when you start to think across scale that you start to get into these questions of access and that is the fund at at you know the heart of our democracies it is a fundamental inherent tension so in a sense it just reflects the fundamental tension in our political system i guess my my in some in some senses i'm sort of i left feeling i'm left feeling slightly unsatisfied mm-hmm. but i wonder if that that lack of satisfaction comes from sort of the sense of having missed out that we were that that you know while we are interested in this ritualized transformative moment it is not one that we can share mm-hmm. because it it's happened and we weren't part of it. and fomo fomo and i wonder if the experience of listening to the audiobook version of the whistleblower complaint doesn't have quite the same effect mm-hmm. precisely because of that tension scale mm. point you are making because you don't have the exclusivity of being in a small room listening to it and that being a significant memory for you if you can go on to an you know a, a device that is connected to the internet at any time and go on to the you know click the link and listen to this actor doing a very good job of reading the letter something is lost somewhere mm-hmm. and what is it that is lost why is it not transformative in the same way is it or, or, and if not why not yeah i mean it does feel like the incompleteness and the lack of satisfaction is also reflected by the people who talk about it 
So, you know, you mentioned yeah. Mark Thomas at the end saying, yes. um, you know, we get something from this, but also we don't. Yes. There's something missing. Yes. And maybe then it is it is a search for transformation mm-hmm. rather than achieving it. Yeah. Or the transformation is always only partial. Limits of performance, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know if this episode made any sense at all, but it was one where I felt there were questions that I wanted to examine myself through the means of a podcast episode. Yeah. It feels a bit abstract. Yeah. But it 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 felt important, you know, it felt I it sort of it felt important not least because it's a trope that is clearly important to many people across different moments and different political contexts. Mm-hmm. Um and it felt important enough to try to disentangle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we never promise answers about anything anyway, so no, we've left you with more questions. Managing expectations. Yes. Um, let us know how you think, how you feel. Uh, let us know if you agree with us, if you disagree with us. Um, rate us on iTunes if you like, or wherever you've picked us up. Uh, we will be mentioning our Twitter handles and Facebook accounts after uh, after we finish uh, we are going to at some point in the near future hopefully do an episode where we answer your questions uh, so if you have questions for us who we are what we do why we do what we do and so on uh, then hit us up on Twitter or Facebook let us have your questions and we will answer them in a future episode very soon uh, other than that Have lovely weeks and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richaudhvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?